Um, Misha is the editor of the conversation and also the executive director. He has been a journalist for more than 20 years and in previous roles he was founding editor of The Big Issue Australia and editor of Crikey, uh, The Reader and The Melbourne Weekly. He worked for The Age as a reporter and feature writer and spent several years at the ABC where he was a, a TV producer on Media Watch and the 7th Betty Report and an editor on The Drum. Oh. Wonderful CV. Um, please join me in welcoming Misha to speak to us on the topic of media literacy and conversation. I'm actually especially pleased to be here because um, in terms of audiences that I would like to be talking to, I could think of no more important group than you, um, given the work that you do with young people um, and their access to information, um, and given the problems that we face currently with the quality of information that's available and the information ecosystem. Um, so what I'd like to do is start by sketching out a little bit about where I think we've sort of gotten to um, in terms of sort of the issues that we're facing uh, around quality information. And then what I'll do is take you through a little bit some of the things that the conversation is doing if you're, if you're sort of not aware of our work. Um, I really think that uh, 2019 was probably the year in which the penny dropped um, about the ways in which the sort of the big hopes of the digital revolution um, in terms of giving us better access to information than ever before and better access to quality information, the ways in which they haven't delivered quite what we hoped have sort of really started to become clear. Um, I was quite actively involved with the um, ACCC inquiry into digital platforms. Um, I don't know if people have been following that inquiry at all across the group. Okay. The ACCC was really charged with looking at, in particular, Google and Facebook um, and the sheer amount of market power they've got in terms of control of traffic. Um, if you look at, from the point of view of media organisations, something around about 70% of their traffic will come from Google and Facebook. Um, they've got a massive control over audiences. And one of the issues all over the world that regulators now are thinking about is given that these companies have these extraordinary market power what responsibilities do we put on them? Um, when I went to the ACCC inquiry, um, it was just after the shootings in Christchurch, um, and in the room there was a lot of anger at Facebook because of the way they showed that live video that the shooter had shot, um, and that was one of the key issues in the room. Um, one of the interesting things is that Google and Facebook have always maintained that they're not media companies, and they're not subject to the same regulation and rules as media companies um, and not subject to the same responsibilities. So although they undertook that they would try to do something about um, weeding out live things that were inappropriate in that way, there are lots of other things in the way that they go about doing business that are very problematic. Um, the key one, more than anything else, is that... Unlike quality journalism, um, a newspaper, the ABC, uh, an organisation that exists to serve the public interest, we now have our public sphere, which is the digital um, space, which is where many young people are getting information, controlled by private corporations that have one objective, and that's profit. And they will do anything they can to make a profit. Um, and the way they make a profit is they control what I call the attention economy, which is if you can keep people using your product, looking at your product, you can make money from that, you can monetize it, you can sell advertising, you can sell data. Um, there's a fantastic book that came out this year called um, 
Surveillance Capitalism by a Harvard academic called Jonah Zuboff, which talks about the ways in which these digital platforms make money out of harvesting our data um, and the way that their business model is very different. But basically they are functioning entirely in an attention economy. What does that mean? It means that they are engineered within an inch of their life to keep you watching. So Google, Facebook, the algorithms, everything is about getting your attention. And unlike the media, um, they are totally free to get your attention any way they like. They can use cat videos, they can use opinions, they can use race hate, they can use um, user-generated content, they can use misinformation, they can use fake news, they can use whatever they want, as long as it actually creates your, um, captures your attention and maintains your attention, it serves their business needs. Um, there's a very famous journalist uh, by the name of Maria Ressa. I don't know how many people have heard of Maria Ressa. Um, she's in the Philippines, um, and she's been very critical of the president there, Duterte, um, and she's been imprisoned a number of times for her journalism. Um, and basically, she's been the victim of a campaign of vilification that has been hosted almost entirely by Facebook. Um, and some of the abuse that she's copped has been vile. It's been a campaign of entirely misinformation um, and bullying. And basically, Facebook's power is that it actually can capture people's attention and keep it for a long period of time and run campaigns like that. Maria Ressa says, and I actually think she's right, that Facebook is more sinister than tobacco companies. Um, in that organisations like that are less regulated um, than, say, for example, even t tobacco was over many years, and they've got an extraordinary amount of freedom to peddle misinformation. And if you look at another industry that profits off um, people's attention, the gambling industry, they are engineered in very, very similar ways. There's a huge amount of science that goes into the algorithms they use to decide what content is served up to you to make you feel hungry, to make you feel a fear of missing out, to give you a dopamine hit so that you stay on, you click on the next thing, you click on the next thing, you click on the next thing. Why is this a problem and why should we care? The reason this matters is because these spaces, these private companies are now running our public square. They're running where people get their information and where people get their misinformation. So they're impacting on elections, they're impacting on things like the rates at which people are taking vaccines, they're impacting on debates about important policy issues like climate change. And one of the problems is, is that again, you know, if you think of old school journalism, we're fighting against this information economy. But it's like that scene in Indiana Jones, I don't know if anyone's seen Indiana Jones movies, but that scene where he comes across a guy, I think, in a market, and he's swishing the knife oh, yeah, around, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then Jones pulls out the gun and just shoots him, right? And it's like, we're like the person swishing the knife around because we have got only the capacity to disseminate information that we believe is of quality, that we research, that we work on. We're competing in an attention economy against people who can use a cat video, who can use an opinion, who can use user-generated content, who can use anything. And guess what? They're winning. Um, so what's happened is the digital revolution has had this huge democratising effect. There are a lot more voices out there. Um, and a lot of very bad things about the media have been fixed. The media lacked diversity. Young people didn't have as much voice in the media as they, as they should have. People from marginalised groups didn't have as much voice in the media as they should have. 
And basically, the internet has created a space where people can talk to each other. It's had a really valuable democratising effect in many ways. But in terms of quality information, in terms of our information ecosystem, in terms of hosting a discussion around our democracy, it's been disastrous. Um, and we can see all of the consequences of that already. There's all the data is in. Trust in institutions is down. Trust in politics is down. Trust in journalism is down. Um, any information you put out there, like, you know, if a climate science puts out information, everyone thinks, well, I can just dispute that and it, and it must be wrong. The trust in experts is down as well. So we've got a problem where our whole system is broken. We've got misinformation. We've got people being very combative. Um, we've got a situation where particularly young people have to navigate this pool of information and work out what is reliable and what isn't. And the indications are not very clear. It's very hard to do that. Um, and that means our whole democratic discussion is reduced. Um, that's really where the, the conversation comes in. We were founded in many ways before some of the some of these trends sort of reached their end game, but we could sort of see what was happening in 2011. Um, and really the idea of the conversation was born of this idea that if you want to have an informed public discussion, you need to actually have people who know what they're talking about. Um, people who know what they're talking about are valuable for two reasons, and this is particular, we, we work only with academics who are experts in their field who know what they're talking about. One is that you've actually got the knowledge that can be imparted, the productive years of research, the product of actually working hard on something. The second reason working with academics is really important is because on the whole, they are there to serve the public interest. They're working in public institutions. Um, when academics write for us, we ask them to disclose any funding, any organisations they're, member, they're members of, anything that might cloud their judgments. But we basically see them as a good source of disinterested information rather than the representation of a vested interest. And if you look at our political system, one of the other great problems is so many of our political decisions are the product of those who have access to the political decision makers. And generally speaking, they are people who are lobbying for big vested interests. Um, I was at an event in Canberra a couple of years ago um, with somebody called John Daly, some of you may know, he runs the Grattan Institute. And he was saying, if you walk through the halls of Parliament House, it's teeming with lobbyists, lobbying for all sorts of companies, all sorts of organisations. But there's nobody there lobbying for the public interest as a general concept. Now, the idea is supposed to be that the politicians are the guardians of the public interest. But if they're spending all their time talking to people who are saying, hey, you should do this because it's you know, a really good idea, or you should do that, that access translates into policy outcomes. So what you need to do is you need to have injected into the public discourse people who, as far as is possible, are going to have open minds, a commitment to a rigorous process of inquiry, um, and as a primary objective, serving the public interest. That doesn't mean that every academic is entirely unbiased or doesn't have an opinion on an issue. Um, that's, to some extent, an impossible ideal. But what we do by working with academics is we try to provide quality information um, and try to actually create a more healthy information ecosystem. Um, so I'll just quickly go through um, some of these slides talking a bit about the conversation. Um, first of all, I should have started with this, but I'd like to ignore the Indigenous owners of the land on which we're meeting today. Um, we also put a big um, priority on publishing Indigenous authors. We think it's really important. Um, there are lots of Indigenous academics in Australian universities, um, and that's a significant part of sort of our conversation. 
Um, so just for your background, the conversation was founded in 2011 in Melbourne with this idea of trying to help academics be better involved in public discourse. Um, I was actually working at Media Watch at the time, and I was spending a lot of time on the phone to academics who would say to me, I've been misquoted, my words have been twisted, um, the media has turned my information into a story that isn't quite true because they're chasing ratings or they're trying to um, you know, impress people in a certain way. And the idea really was about trying to make sure that people who know what they're talking about are in the public discourse. Since we've launched um, in, in Melbourne, the idea has become a, a very um, big global network. Um, it's sort of like a franchise model, so each team sort of runs its own operation in its own country. So we've got a team in the UK, the US, France, Africa, New Zealand, Indonesia, Canada. Um, and what we've really started to do is connect together a global network of the world's top academics um, who can be engaged in communicating their ideas to the public. I think there's something like, the latest I looked at was about 60,000 academics registered on the site globally. Um, and you'll notice that our um, monthly audience in Australia is about 5.4 million unique users on site. Um, we're actually a really big media organisation, much bigger than many people realise, because we've got no money and we can't actually um, build a brand as such in the same way that like if you're Channel 7 or 10, you put your logos out and that sort of thing. But one of the ways that we disseminate our content is we make it free for other media outlets to republish. So our content routinely appears in the ABC, most weeks in Fairfax newspaper, which will find conversation articles, news limited users as well, Washington Post, New York Times, all over the world, our content is republished by other media outlets because they know it's high-quality edited content by academic experts. And that's um, part of the way we've built a very sizable audience so if you think about that 5.4 million users, the ABC Digital has about 10 million a month on site. So our on-site audience is about half the size of the ABC in Australia. But when you um, look at the republishing as well, it's actually larger um, because all of our content goes to so many other media outlets. So although we're probably not terribly well-known as an organisation, that's partly why I'm talking to people like you because I would like you to let people know about us and what we're doing. Um, we've actually got a very sizable audience. Um, this is just a list of some of our republishers, so some of the media networks that we work with all over the world. And actually, in fact, we sort of automate the system, so there's a button you can push to republish an article. It's also worth noting that what we're trying to do is um, encourage academics to talk to the public. It's not about academics talking to each other. I was actually at a conference in Canberra yesterday that was all about peer review and peer review journals in that process. Mm -hmm. And peer review journals are very much B2B, right? Um, I don't know how many of you read peer review journals. I try occasionally because it's part of my job. It's not easy. Um, it's not written in a language that you can understand. The content is not presented often in a really useful way. But often the content is incredibly useful. Like I might get a paper that comes across my desk and it's an academic who's done a longitudinal study into the way children with autism adapt to a classroom environment, right? And you see this abstract and it's got all these words and it's really complicated. And I look at it and I say, actually, this has got some really interesting information of what works and what doesn't for children with autism. We could turn this around and do an article saying five tips for parents, you know, kids with autism are starting school, right? And suddenly you've got really great content from an academic expert in a language that you can understand in a way that's useful. 
So a lot of the work that we do is taking that content and translating it um, so that it's available to a general public. Um, and that's really what we're trying to do there. So 80% of our um, readership on site is academics. I would like to decrease that number even further. Um, we don't, we're not aiming to have academics talking to academics. So just very briefly, there are sort of three types of content that we publish. Um, the first is new research, often tied to a journal article. So if you're an academic and you do a longitudinal research into the way um, children in same-sex relationships thrive, for example, or fail to thrive, um, we would say, when that article comes out in a journal, um, you should pitch it to us. If there's a debate about same-sex marriage happening at the time, we will actually hook it into the news. We'll say, you know, so-and-so has said that, you know, this, um, this particular issue, here's what the evidence said, here's what the academic research says, and we'll actually present that academic research. Um, we pitch this to academics um, as a way of sharing their expertise when they've done new research. And when they publish an article with us, it actually increases their journal citation rates because what it does is it provides a plain language version of the article that the general public can understand. And guess what? A lot of academics don't read journals either. Um, <laughs> so they read on the conversation, they go, oh, that's really interesting. I'll go and look at the journal article, and then that article will get quoted. So it's really useful for the academics as well. It helps sell their work and their ideas. Um, the second type of work that we do is very much hooked to the news cycle. If something happens in the news, um, I really encourage our editorial team to jump onto it and give people useful information. So um, when there was a big debate about Section 44 of the Constitution um, and whether politicians were invalidly elected to Parliament because they fell foul of Section 44, we had a constitutional law scholar who wrote a piece explaining what Section 44 was, what it did, and what the test would be as to whether you know, um, people were eligible to be in Parliament or not, for example. Um, this piece is about um, Christchurch. So um, when the Christchurch shooting happened, we've got a New Zealand editor. We had about four or five pieces up within about 10 hours. Um, this one piece, um, which was about the video that Facebook put up, um, that was hugely controversial, that got 1.5 million reads, was republished all over the world, including by CNN, um, you know, all over the place. Um, and that academic did a huge amount of huge amount of interviews, like basically was just in the media for the whole sort of next three or four days. That's another thing that we do in a really useful way. If something happens in the news and there is an academic who can explain it or provide context, we're basically saying to the rest of the media, here's somebody who knows about this. So they can do the TV, they can do the radio, our academics often on the project, um, you know, you'll see them around all sorts of things. Often it's come from conversation articles, because basically we're telling the media, here are people who can actually help explain what's going on. Um, another example I often use is, for example, um, when an H370 went down, we got an expert on ocean currents to explain how you model ocean currents so you work out where to search for debris. Um, and what we do if we're really creative is we'll actually try to say, okay, let's create an interactive so that um, a reader who's interested can drop a bit of you know, imaginary debris in a, in a map on their computer and see where it goes. Right. Things like that. Why do we do that? It goes back to what I was saying before about the attention economy. We're competing against Facebook and social media and Google and everybody else that are trying to get people's attention. We're trying to get them to read quality information. 
that actually is people who know what they're talking about. But to do that, we've got to use every technique of the attention economy that the others are using that we can actually use. So if we can create a quiz, if we can create an infographic, if we can create a way of telling a story really quickly, if we can create a BuzzFeed list, five things you need to know about, we will do that because that will make the information digestible. And our job is really working to try to get good information out to the public. Um, so again, that's a little bit more on um, Christchurch, just the speed at which we um, publish pieces. Um, I won't go into that in too much detail. The other type of content that we have is sort of timeless content. Um, and that's basically where we go to an academic and we use them to do something that will actually be useful for a reader. So one of those things we have is a thing called um, weekly dose. And basically what we do in that instance is we look at a drug um, or a, a product and we get a medical expert to say, does it work or doesn't it? Are the claims on the package true or not? I was having a big debate with my wife about um, this thing called Evacol, which is like a purple cold remedy. Um, <laughs> And one of the things I love more than anything else is coming into the office and saying, right, can we do a story on that? So I can argue it. So I brought in the a cold packet, I put it on the editor's desk and I said, can we do something on whether this actually, there's any evidence that this works or not? Um, and those sorts of things are really useful for, again, members of the general public. Yeah, we want to know. Ah, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, you know, my, my wife's still very, she loves it though. She's the placebo effect's fantastic. Like the <laughs> so, you know, so we still have these at Cold Fair House. Nevertheless, I mean, that's a, <laughs> a separate issue. Yeah. So, um, so with these timeless products, the idea is about, again, just talking about one of the things that's been a consequence of the digital revolution is a is a decline in trust, trust in institutions, trust in politicians, trust in the media, in particular trust in experts. So what we're trying to do is model that trust. Who do you go to? Who should you trust? Well, you should trust an academic, generally. I mean, they're not perfect, but um, out of all the people, at least they do some research and they do know what they're talking about. So one of the products we've got is a thing called Curious Kids, which I wanted to raise with all of you. It's been hugely successful. Um, and that's where we get children who are between six and 12 to send in a question for an academic to answer. And there can be anything from why are there waves to what happens if you suck up a spider in a vacuum cleaner to why is we yellow to anything else. And then an academic will answer it. Um, these, we actually run events for these. Um, so we go out to schools and we get students to ask questions and we get academics to be in the room to answer them or they'll take them on notice and take them away. But it's a bit about trying to model this idea about who do you go to when you want quality information. Um, there's a whole bunch of other things that we've got in this realm of what I call editorial products. Another one um, that's been really successful is called Five Experts, which is used a lot in school curriculums now. I know that in, in New South Wales, for example, it's commonly used. And it'll just take a basic question like, should mobile phones be banned from the classroom? And we'll ask five experts. And three might say no and two might say yes. So it could be contested. But then I'll each say in a paragraph, this is why I think this or that, from different perspectives. And it just gives people a sense of what the evidence is, how you think about evidence, where something is contested. There's not always a clear answer. There can be arguments both ways, there can be information both ways. Um, so this is just a little bit about the different ways that we tell stories. So um, we do animations, like animation videos. So what is alcohol? We work with academics to explain what alcohol is and how it affects the body. Um, 
We did one on cancer, which is about how um, different um, behaviours influence your risk of cancer in different parts of your body. Um, we do uh, comic explainers. We publish books. Um, we publish a podcast called Trust Me, I'm an Expert, where academics talk about um, issues in the news and bring their expertise to bear on it. Um, and again, this is partly what I was talking to you before about the attention economy. We need to use every technique we possibly can to package up the information so it can get to the maximum number of readers. Um, just very briefly, a little bit about how we um, work with academics. Um, one of the things we do, which is very important, is you've got this little thing here called the readability index. And you see that little thing that's green? It's a traffic light system. So it goes from green to amber to red. And it's red if they're using lots of long words and lots of long sentences. <laughs> and we say to them, we're not going to publish until it's green. Because we want to make sure that every article, um, we, ha we have this sort of saying we use, which is that um, you should never disembark a vehicle if you can get out of a car. And it's basically <laughs> our way of saying to academics, don't be pompous, use plain, ordinary language, ordinary words, never utilise if you can use, never assist if you can help, just speak in, in plain language to our readers, because that's the clearest way of presenting the content. We've got this sort of collaborative editing platform where we work with the academics, we rewrite their content quite extensively. Um, we'll often take a thousand words and pretty much rewrite every single word and then say, we just tweaked it a little bit, um, <laughs> hope it's okay. But one of the rules is we can't publish until they approve the final version. Um, and that's to ensure that in the editing process we don't introduce any errors. Because part of what we're trying to do is we know there's an information ecosystem infected with disinformation we don't want to be guilty of putting any more disinformation into that information ecosystem. So that's sort of why we've got that. That's a little bit more about the readability index. It's designed by some academics called Flesh Kincaid. It's basically it's a little algorithm that tells you how many words and how long the words are. Um, we also ask academics to collect disclosure statements on every article. Because there are instances where you'll be quoting an academic who's writing about vaccines, who's done some consultancy work for a vaccine company or received some funding. Um, and we think that our readers have a right to know about that. doesn't necessarily disqualify them. There are some areas in which it's very common for academics to work with industry or with other people. Um, and so we don't always say, no, you can't write. Um, but we do want readers to know if there is anything that could influence their, their judgment. And there are times when we'll just say no. Like, um, I got a media release once from... I think it was an academic at the University of Sydney who had done some research funded by Big Ben, a pet food company, about why dogs like to eat pet food. And I was like, no, we're not going to run that. Um, okay. We also send regular expert requests to universities so that we're getting um, content off the, off the media. Um, academics pitch to us. We get hundreds of pitches a week, and we're unfortunately now at a point where we're, we're rejecting about 90% of them. Um, because we're just getting so many, so many pieces. And what we're trying to do is be really rigorous about saying, okay, I've got eight hours today to do an article. What can I do to best serve the interests of my readers? Because there's always like things or pitch you can pick, you can pick up. But sometimes it's actually saying, I don't want to do that. I want to go to this thing on section three, or I want to do this thing on autism, or whatever it is that actually the readers want. So you've got to make really hard decisions about how you spend your time. Um, so just a little bit about the impact. So, um, 66% of authors report being contacted by the media. Um, 
there are a lot of things that flow from the academics, which is why they love doing it. Um, one of the key things is that academics actually do have the evidence uh, on a lot of important issues, and often they struggle to be heard by the policymakers, by the politicians. One of the great things is we've got an expanding bureau in Parliament House. We've now got um, Nicole Hashim, who we just hired from Fairfax, Michelle Bratton works for us in Parliament, and Peter Martin, who's a great economics writer. Um, and what we're trying to do is make sure that we are servicing the evidence for the politicians. So we know, for example, his stories about politicians walking down the corridors being briefed from conversation articles. Our authors are commonly contacted by politicians wanting more information. They often give submissions to government inquiries because the politicians and the media read this content. And it provides a plain language version for them to access the academic expertise as well. But it's actually about trying to use people who know what they're talking about to inform the policy process. Um, I'm not going to go into this too much. These are really more directed at academics. Basically, this is sort of talking a bit about some of the things that flow from them writing for the conversation. Um, so, um, for example, this academic was asked by the NHMRC, the National Health and Medical Research Council, to provide some advice after she wrote an article. <coughs> so these are some of the types of things that can happen. Um, this academic had an article that didn't get a massive number of readers. It was read 10,000 times. But um, it was actually picked up by the um, UN Office for Disaster Risk Research Reduction. Um, so that was significant for that academic. So not everything you do is going to necessarily get a massive audience of millions of readers, but it can still have a huge impact. That's just a little bit about some of our republishers. Um, this, again, is something we talk about with academics, which is academics are encouraged to have an impact in public discourse um, outside of their universities. And altmetric is one way um, that impact is attempted to be measured. So it's a little bit about that. I'm not going to go too much into that. Um, now, here's the key thing I want to ask all you to do, please. If you could subscribe to our daily newsletter. It's free. It takes... 30 seconds or so. Um, it's got a two-factor thing, so you've got to go to your inbox and pick it as well, um, so that we don't get bots signing up to us. But basically, we send it out every day. It's everything we've published in the last 24 hours. Um, it's really high-quality content. Um, it's only written by academics. It's only written by people who are writing in the area of expertise. Um, if you're a botanist and you want to write an article about why Donald Trump's an idiot, we won't run it. Um, I might agree with the article, but what we're doing is the idea is about serving expertise in a really useful way, so it's just people who are writing in the area of expertise. Um, and what we're wanting to do is really get out our message as much as possible, because in this sort of age of an information ecosystem that is sick in many ways, where there's a lot of bad information, this is one source of really terrific information. Um, if you're writing an essay or an assignment, um, you're not going to get in trouble for quoting a professor of taxation um, you know, on a tax policy question, um, or an expert in um, climate change in your article about climate change. These are the cutting-edge researchers who know more about this topic than anything else, and they're all here in plain English that, that people can understand. So in the work that you're doing day to day, um, what I would encourage you to do, it's all free, um, is use the conversation as a resource. Um, encourage young people who you're working with to use the conversation as a resource. Show them the things that indicate it's trustworthy. Um, the profiles of academics are on there, their expertise, their disclosure statements, 
all those things that say, yes, this is content that has been curated, that is reliable, it's a process around ensuring it's accurate. Um, because I think one of the things that we have to do is, or a couple of things, one of which is try to ensure that there's quality information in the system, but also ensure that the people um, who are using that information know how to identify it and know how to manage it. Um, and that's where you will control. Um, so I'm going to stop there, apart from just reading back, please sign up. Um, and if anyone's got any questions, I'd love to answer some questions. I have Sorry, any questions? Misha, um, at the fake news um, slam conference, yeah. I think it was last year, um, you told us that the, 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 the reading age of the material on the conversation was targeted to 16-year-olds? Yeah, it's about 16 year olds yeah. That's still the same? That's still the case? Mostly, but, yeah. yeah. But... Um, okay. There are articles that are targeted younger, so the Curious Kids, for example, they're definitely written for six to twelve year olds. Yeah. They're very but nothing nothing in between so far? Um there's not a massive amount. I mean okay. it, it, it depends on the text. I mean you have to sort of look around a bit. I mean it, it varies. That's a very general thing. If you think about a newspaper, for example, the Herald Sun, yeah. um, they aim for a twelve year old reading level. Um, that's a pretty standard thing in newspapers. But there would be plenty of articles in there or some that a 12 year old couldn't even yeah. understand. Yeah. And there'd be lots of that could. I mean, there's always yeah. like a variation around the area. So, um, you know, I would hope that, um, you know, many sort of 10, 11, 12 year olds could understand many of our articles, particularly things like the five experts and the curious kids, which are really targeting okay. younger yeah. people. Um, <coughs> but yes, there would definitely be content there that might be a little bit beyond their reading level. Ago. Um, and we're looking for new sources of money, but in some ways, 
I'm not entirely unhappy about not having money from government um, <laughs> because I do feel like, I mean, we've got very strict rules about that, about any funding can't influence the editorial, um, but I still feel that being really dependent on the university sector is really important. Mm -hmm. Other questions? Questions of mission? Great. Well, thank you. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Okay. Well, thank you. Exceptionally well yet again. Oh, right. thank, you. <laughs> thank you, Michelle. Very generous. Thanks. Very generous. Yeah. Very much. It's a wonder